Welcome to the 76th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horror to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Kimberly A. Martin, the senior NFL writer for Yahoo Sports and a woman whose resume has taken her from Long Island to Buffalo to Washington and to many points in between. And today we're going to tackle a few things, including the difficulties and technicalities of leaving a dream job for another dream job for another dream job, as well as how to profile someone with all the trademark life cliches and not make the piece even remotely cliched. Kimberly is an insanely talented scribe with a lot to say, and she's right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. All right, Kimberly, first of all, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Where are you right now? Like right now at this I, moment. <laughs> I am in my condo in New Jersey, surrounded by boxes um, that I still haven't opened from my move from Virginia uh, a month ago. <laughs> so Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and why did you move? Why did you, um, you were based in DC, obviously for the post and you took the job at Yahoo. Did you have to move to Jersey? Was that part of the uh, deal? Or did you just- yeah, I, um, I was given the option of working out of the LA office or the New York office. And, um, my husband actually, my husband and I have a condo in Jersey and he was actually still here while I was sort of bouncing around over the last calendar year. So I pretty much just brought more stuff back into our condo. So it worked out. Got it. Well, welcome back to Jersey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Enjoy. Um, so I said to you before we, uh, we started recording this, I, I want to talk about some of your stories. And I also wanted to talk, I thought you'd be an interesting person to talk to about sort of career management. And I said, because you've had a really interesting career and you left. And um, <laughs> I know why you laughed because you're sort of a vagabond. Not in a negative way, but you've definitely moved around uh, journalistically these past few years. And and it's you had a very long, you actually had an unusually long stay at Newsday. You were there for, for nine years, I think, almost 10 years. Yeah, um, I left probably two months before my 10th year was done. Mm-hmm. So almost right. 10 years so, at Newsday. Um, yeah, so that's a long, that's an unusually <clears throat> long time these days. And then you were a columnist for the Buffalo News for three months. Am I right? Two. Three months. Two. Two months. Sorry, two <laughs> yeah. months. But it was the best two months ever. Then um, best two months. Then, mm-hmm. And and then you land a uh, what I would call a supersonic one of those gigs where you're like, damn, that's a great gig, which is covering the Redskins for the Washington Post. And the Post is on top. To me, the Post is on top of the newspaper world right now, mm-hmm. maybe in part top of the media world. And you're there for a year, and then you go to Yahoo. And I am fascinated. Why would you leave the Post for Yahoo? What was the reason? <sighs> For me, so it wasn't, it was almost a year. It was nine months at the post. Um, so yeah, I think people are kind of taken aback by the past year. I literally, I don't like the vagabond term only because I was at Newsday for 10 years and out of my entire career, I had one year of a lot of movement. So I know it's not, I would not recommend it for anybody else. Um, but I think my career is kind of atypical, and that's what makes me uh, a little different. I left the post not because I didn't like it. Um, I, for me, I'm all about opportunities. And so I've been really lucky that in 
you know, a calendar year, each job I've gotten has provided um, bigger, better sort of opportunities, in my opinion. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And what were you so, looking for? Like, what were you looking for? Uh, um, I think, you know, I really liked Buffalo. Um, people are surprised when I say that. I really liked working at the Buffalo News. Uh, while I was there, I was a columnist and feature writer, which I think is the best fit for me. Um, and I like that in Buffalo, I was literally, you know, that I was something that that department hadn't seen in a young black female sports columnist. So leaving that job, I'll be, I know working at the Washington Post is, was literally my dream. Um, so it is a little shocking to me that I'm not there, but because that was always the goal. It was like, get to the Washington Post. Um, but I think things happen for a reason. Um, and, and I, and I, I really, it was difficult leaving Buffalo even for the Washington Post because I felt like that was a unique role. And at the time I was only, I was the only black female sports columnist working for a major paper in the country. And that was hard to give up. Um, so yeah, I think it's all about challenges and, um, being, um, sort of not waiting for, people to tell you when you're ready for stuff. I think, I, I think I've just been, um, I think I just trust myself. I, I really do. And, and again, I mean, I worked in finance before I even got my master's in journalism. So I would not advise my career path for anybody else, but I think I'm an example of that. Um, you can go against the grain and you can do as long as you are objective about your skill set and where you're trying to go. Um, and you work hard, I think it, it pans out. So I can tell you, and you didn't know this probably, I actually worked at Newsday before you were there for a year. I was there for a year in the, I had the best job ever. I just want to say I worked there right after nine 11 in the feature section. My job was to roam New York city and write. Um, I wrote two stories a month just for the features, the the pullout magazine type thing. And there would be like 3000 word features. And I wrote two a month and I could roam New York City and write about what I want. And one day uh, I was called into the office and they called everyone in the office and they said, we want everyone to come into the office four or five days a week. And I was like, yeah, that's it. So, <laughs> and I remember I'd been there a year and, and maybe three months and I quit. And I remember being nervous and apprehensive and having to tell them I was leaving. And I, d- I am fascinated because I do think there's um, it's there are important lessons to be learned in this. And, and your career, again, is a really fascinating career. You're when you're at Buffalo for two months, how mm-hmm. do you tell them you're leaving? That was so difficult. I mean, I think I cried. I, I definitely cried writing my goodbye email. Um, and But here's the thing. They are great. The Buffalo News management, great, great people. Six weeks into the job is when the Post called me about wow. like, hey, we know this. the timing sucks, but we just had our Redskins writer leave. So we'd like you to come down. So as soon as I hung up with the post, you know, my first thing was I was still at the bills facility. I think I was working on a story. So I texted my managing editor and just said like, Hey, this just happened. So I was upfront from jump and, um, you know, they were good about, well, we understand you have to go down there, you know, just, just don't say yes to anything, you know? So they were great. They were great. And what, 
I mean, it was difficult, obviously, for them, for me, but I was up front. And I think that um, I, I still love the people there um, that I worked with and worked for. So, I mean, I think if, if it was for any other publication <laughs> other than the Post, um, you know, or the New York Times, I guess, um, they'd probably be like, are you are you kidding? But a lot of people there were like, I get it. It sucks for us. I mean, because they had recruited me for a couple of years to come up there. Um, so I finally felt like, OK, this is the job, you know, this is the type of job I want. Um, and then when the dream paper calls, it's sort of like, <gasps> you know, right. um, so yeah, that made it, that made it tough, but they, it was difficult, but they understood. Okay. So how did you do it? Same sort of thing. Now, here you are at the, if I were the, sorry. So if I were the Buffalo, I'm your sports editor with the Buffalo news mm -hmm. and Kimberly comes to me and says, I got a job offer the Washington post. Like you I was at it. the Tennessean and Sports Illustrated offered me a job and I went to my editors and they were very understanding. So I would be your editor of the Buffalo News and I'd be like, this sucks, but I 100% get it and I want you to do this. If I'm if I'm your sports editor of the Washington Post and you tell me Yahoo's coming, I don't know if I feel the same way. Um, And I'm sure they did it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be the first person to leave the Washington Post for Yahoo. It's funny, the guy sure. they replaced to hire me was Les Carpenter who... I think in like 2008 had left the post to go to Yahoo and now he's back at the post. Um, he replaced me on the Redskins beat. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, like I get it. The Washington Post, to me, it's the premier newspaper. I get it. Um, right. but I think for me, I think I just, I just needed, um, a different, a different, sort of challenge. I think, um, I think like each opportunity, like I did not come after anybody. It literally was like, I met Newsday and, you know, Buffalo had talked to me for a while. And then I said, well, okay, this actually makes sense. And I was minding my business in Buffalo and the post came and called and I was minding my business on the red. You know what I mean? It's not like, I don't, I have the last year I did not spend going after any jobs. I was really lucky in that people came after me. And I thought, I just sort of looked at what are the skills or different challenges, the different things. How could I sort of stretch my comfort zone? How could I um, sort of challenge myself as a, na like now I'm a national NFL writer. So how do I challenge? It's a different skill set, a way different, a way different skill set uh, when you cover the whole league. As opposed to a beat where it's sort of like the rhythm of a beat, you know, the quarterback talks on Wednesdays, your day, your days are pretty much scripted for the most yeah. part. So, um, so yeah, I just kind of looked at it as, um, it was, it was really tough leaving the post, but at the end of the day, I, I believe in me and my talent and what I can do. And sometimes people don't believe in that. And that is completely okay. Like it's nobody else's, it's not a sports editor's job to sort of um, trust or believe in your talent. You know what I'm saying? You would like them to. Um, yeah. And so I, I got enough faith. So I think, I think I did the right thing. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think this was the better move for me. What is the, I always wonder this with, with journalism. And I ask myself this a lot too, like, um, what is the end game of it all? Like you, you trust your ability and you told me a mm -hmm. couple of days ago that you really want to do, you know, more video work and Yahoo gave you a chance to do that. Um, 
like, what is it like at some point in life, we all retire, get old and die. So like, mm-hmm. what, what, what is the like, super upbeat combo? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Hey, <laughs> and climate change is real. Right. Um, like, what are you, like, what are you trying to do? Angling like, what do you forward? want this? Where do you want this to take you? This whole thing. Mm, I, uh, I, it's not, I think I am, I've been, uh, sort of, I think it's important for us as uh, in any profession to be calculated risk takers. Um, but not necessarily have the entire end game mapped out. For me, um, <clears throat> for me, like, just, I think there's the, the freedom that I have at Yahoo to kind of push the envelope a little bit and sort of try to think of stories in a different way. Or like I did this, now this was like, I did this video sit down with Josh Norman. Yes, um, now I had known about that he was shooting a pilot in LA when I was on the Redskins beat for the post. And I had said, Hey, like during your bye week I'm coming. Now I had totally pictured this being a written story for the post. Now when the Yahoo things comes up and I move back here, I'm like, I still want to do that story. And now it becomes a written piece with a video component and you get to do a sit down interview on camera. Um, it's sort of, you know, that's something that's not that I've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not so much, Oh, I left the post to do video. That's not it at all. It's more about to me. I'm a storyteller, no matter what, whether I spend all of my days covering sports or I transition and, Right. It, I go to a different department somewhere else. I cover, I just write features or I cover news, whatever. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but to me, I'm all about telling people stories. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And this is a weird one, but I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and she's sponsoring the podcast this week. So, Casey, what are you selling? Candles. USFL candles? No. Donald Trump candles? Definitely not. So? Scented candles. All right. Floor is yours. It's a fundraiser for the girls' water polo team at Elisa Miguel High School. You buy candles, room sprays, and essential oils. That's not a throwback Doug Greenwashing Federals jersey. No, but the smells will throw you back. I don't even know what that means. Look, Dad, seriously. I need to do this fundraiser, so if people could buy some candles, it would make my life a whole lot easier, and you'd smell good. All right, what do they need to do? It's easy. Go to GlowScentedCandles.com and type in the code 204087. That's it? That's it. Does this mean you're going to start listening to the podcast? Um, no. You wrote a piece that fascinated me. It was in for the Washington Post, and it was in May. And it was, why did Darius Geis' draft night drop hurt so badly? Start back at the bottom. You remember the story, I imagine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You went to Baton Rouge to report it. I'm going to read the lead real quick, which is uh, two cell f- the, the two cell phones rested on the table, silent and still. Why wouldn't they ring? Uh, Darius guys could feel his family, friends, and former coaches watching him. They all were waiting anxiously for the call, all waiting to hear the Louisiana State running back's name read aloud like all the other players who had sat in the green room. This April night at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, the first in the NFL draft, should have signaled a dramatic shift in a young life marred by tragedy, violence, and pain. His father murdered in a Denny's when Geis was only five. His brother locked up in an East Baton Rouge Paris jail following his alleged role in an attempted homicide. His mother left to hold herself and the family together. 
This night was supposed to be the final chapter in Guy's journey out of his impoverished Baton Rouge neighborhood, known as the bottom. Instead, it was just another disappointment in a life filled with setbacks and seemingly insurmountable odds. You can tell the story about this guy who thought he was going to be drafted very high, falling to 59th overall by the Redskins. And number one, it's a great story. It's actually, it's a great story. And you did it really well. Um, and here's what I want to ask you because I was thinking about it. This story in many ways hits on every cliche of the young, poor African American athlete mm-hmm. in American culture, which is he came from the South. He grew up poor, raised primarily by a single mother. His father was killed. His brother's in jail. He's a guy who's going to over, who had to overcome the odds. He's a guy who felt slighted Sports because is the he, salvation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sports is the salvation. Um, I mean, every, it hits every note. Uh, his biography hits every note of the sort of cliche, unfortunate cliche biography. And yet the story is freaking gripping and really fascinating and ridiculously well done. And I sort of wonder what was your approach to this piece? What were you thinking? How did you want to go about it? Thank you um, for even complimenting it. Um, that means a lot. Um, what I was thinking, you know, <sighs> that story um I literally went down when the minute he was drafted, I was like, okay, I have to write Darius guys. Um, and I probably went down a few days after the draft. I went to Baton Rouge, not knowing that he would even be in Baton Rouge. Like I went there to find out, is this kid, uh, you know, crazy? Is he like, what's wrong with him? Because the way the pre-draft, um, discussions were ha- were unfolding on TV, it was, you know, oh, you know, there's talks of, you know, issues with Darius, off the field issues that are scaring off teams. And it was like, what the hell? So I've put out so many phone calls to people, went down there literally looking for somebody um, to give me an idea of who this kid was. I just happened to see on Instagram that he was in Baton Rouge at the same time. So I was able to connect through a friend, connect to him, and then spent an afternoon with him. But I really didn't have a lot of time to put the story together. Um, How long? The first draft of it, I had a couple days. And then the editing, I mean, there was a whole editing process um, uh, between myself and, and an editor about how it should flow and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so that the editing process going back and forth took longer than me actually writing the, the story. Um, so that was, I feel like that was hard because I wanted to be fair and show who this kid is. I mean, he's, he, I love that the reason I like storytelling is that people are complicated. Like even people that you think are like great. He, oh, he's so good. He's so nice. He's so sweet. Everybody has something everybody has a story to tell and so for Darius it was just sort of like this was one of those stories where sometimes you just kind of like have to stand take a step back and not get in the way of it because the story itself is so gripping and it's almost like shocking I mean he even has the the blindside angle of the white family that takes him in um you know you know, he went to a Catholic high school. He went to public school first, then his mom sent him to Catholic high school. And it was just easier, you know, it was just easier for him to live with this family. Um, but, I mean, it was just, the goal was just to sort of paint an accurate picture. And these kind of stories, like, I was nervous about 
get like making sure everything was factually accurate, like number one, and and making sure that, you know, you speak to so many people and then you almost feel bad that people are left out of the story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes you can have too many voices. So I think people were kind enough to give me a lot of time to talk about Darius and you wanted to do right by them. But really, the story is about him and his journey. And I mean, cliches are what they are. I mean, they're stare, you know. You can't really do anything about it. I mean, this is the kid's story. I've asked this of other writers. I mean, as we get older, the athletes stay the same age. You know, like we, <laughs> it's it is true, surprising. you know, like, and yeah, very, yeah, Meg, no, no kidding. But, um, you know, so here's this 22 year old kid or whatever he is, I don't know, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're this woman in your, I don't know, mid to late thirties or whatever. Like, do you find it at all harder to relate with a 22 year old kid? as we get farther away from 22? No, it actually, it actually, so I, it, it, I can't relate to them on some of the new music and, and like video games. Like I'm never going to be able to connect with an athlete. Some male reporters, female reporters can, can bond with them over that. Like that's just not me. Um, mm. But I think, Regardless of your age, what always strikes me about this business is you have so many. I've come across way too many reporters who don't like their main objective isn't to understand the subject subjects that they're writing about. And that to me, I don't understand how. You know, they spend so much time like, okay, I understand the game of football. Well, okay, great. But you also in telling the stories of a football team, it's like you are covering people. And I feel like so many people look at them just as these sort of, you know, characters that come and go, they get traded here and there. Like they never really try to get an understanding of who these guys are. So that, and I also was a psych major undergrad. So Mm -hmm. for me, like I'm always interested in learning about, them like what interests them what are their hobbies outside what talents do they have what's their family dynamic like um you know stuff like that so even you know it's funny you know Darius had said like I normally I normally wouldn't talk about all this but you know because you're you I you know I trust you or something like that and what do you think you meant by that that's really interesting Mm, I do think (laughs) Um, I think that perhaps I, I, I honestly think my best assets are my personality and the fact that it does in some ways, I think being a black woman can hurt me at times covering sports. I think in this case, um, maybe because I was a woman, maybe because I was a black woman, um, he felt in that moment when he's talking about really sensitive things and trying to talk about his upbringing, maybe there's, maybe it's the questions I was asking. Also, there's just a level of comfort. Um, and I wait, think- but when you say, when you say, uh, when you, when you know your personality and you're saying mm-hmm. that helps you as a reporter, like what specifically mm-hmm. do you mean? What is it about your personality, your makeup that you think okay, allows not- athletes to open up? I think. For some reason, I don't know. I think people feel that I'm genuine in all in all seriousness. Like I know that I'm just somebody who, when I'm in front of people, I put them at ease. 
maybe it's because I don't look like the stereotypical um, press box reporter. You picture like middle-aged white guy. Maybe because I, I'm different. Um, I don't, they, people see me and may not think like, oh, he's a sports reporter, like he covers football. Like what? Like, okay, that's not what I would have expected. People are always surprised when they find out my job. So I think, but I think people, I think they just naturally grab, like, you walk in a locker room, reporters look at players. But sometimes you guys don't, like, people don't realize that the players are looking at you too. Like, they <laughs> take notes. And they know, they know who is genuine. They know who's full of shit. They know who watch film of the game. They know who's just putting on airs. Like, all of that stuff. It's no different than in life. Like you can tell who the BSers are in the world. You know what I mean? And and I think if you just approach people from that, like, hey, like I'm just I'm just here trying to tell your story. And I was very upfront with Darius about like I came down here like thinking, like, what the hell is wrong with this kid? Like I said, I was like, I based on how they talked about you on TV, I came down here looking for it. And he's like, Okay, we'll keep looking. You know, and and I like that. Um, and I think he just got a sense that, um, you know, I was just trying to do my job. I wasn't trying to paint him into anything. It literally was just I'm just trying to show who he is. I'm going to actually I'm going to uh, I'm going to make an observation from afar. And you and I have never met Uh-oh. in person. Okay. No, no, no. I feel like you're selling yourself short here. And here's why. I think a lot of times. <laughs> A go-to will be like someone will say, well, you know, they see me and I'm African-American woman and maybe they feel like they can open up. Or maybe I would say, well, this guy, you know, this guy sees me and I'm a Jewish guy from New York and he's a Jewish guy from New York and he feels comfortable opening up. And I actually think we do this in journalism when we talk about reporting. I swear to God, I really mean this. And I think we sell ourselves short by saying that. Because there are a lot of shitty African-American reporters who can't get an African-American player. There are a lot of shitty Jewish, white, middle-aged men who can't. And I just think, like, I think you're wrong. I actually think the biggest thing, you could tell me to go fuck off, that's fair, is empathy without bullshit, which is to say, I want to hear your story. I really want to know what it's like to be you. Um, I'm not going to give you, I'm not giving you... I'm not here to freaking lather your ego and I'm not here to make you out to be the next Barry Sanders, but I want to hear your story. I genuinely want to hear your story and I'm going to call a million people who you tell me to talk to because I really want to understand you. And I, I really do. I actually get sometimes tired when people say, Oh, she just gets it, gets it because she's black or he just gets it because so-and-so like good reporters get stuff. Bottom line, most of the time because they have a, they have a comfort. They open themselves up to people and people feel comfortable around them. I think that's the number one device in journalism. I really do. That was my lecture. No, that's good. No, you're right. You're right. I, that's a very good point because there are pretty terrible writers of color out there <laughs> that don't, that don't know how to work a locker room, don't know how to get people to, to just open up. Um, I think like it's I an art spend form. a lot of time, but see, I don't even spend a lot of time thinking about what, makes me able to get you know i just feel like oh i'm just being myself maybe people just see that i'm genuine well don't you think like you i'm sure like kimberly martin walks into a locker room or whatever for an interview and number one you're probably not awestruck by the guy number two you're probably not like you don't feel honored 
to get this interview. Like if the guy's going to blow you off, well, you just move on to the next interview. Like I think a big part of it at the beginning is not, I just think like the worst journalists in my, from my experience <laughs> are the ones who are so thrilled to be getting 10 minutes with uh-huh. Kirk Cousins. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, I- I'm happy to have these 10 minutes, but if you're not giving them to me, that's okay. And I think that's kind of important. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. What? 100%. I've covered football. I've covered the Yankees, Mets. I've covered basketball. I've, you're, when you're in different environments, dealing with different players, it, it wears, the mystique wears off very quickly in this business, or it should. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just here to do a job and, you know, you're not here to fanboy out or, or to feel privileged. I do feel like my time, I understand journalism is a lot of hurry up and wait, stand around and wait. I get it. Yep. It's part of the gig. But my time is just as valuable. Um, I don't think, like, like, you know, sitting down with somebody like Alex Smith, like, you know, phenomenal story. Great guy, great guy. Um, but you also, he also treats you with a level of respect that it's just two people talking. And that's really how it should be. It really right. is. I actually want to talk about that story because I actually thought, going back to this, so you wrote a piece on Alex Smith, uh, July 21st, 2018. The headline is Strong Suit. And the subhead is no longer burdened by self-doubt and insecurity. Alex Smith has found a sense of inner peace in Washington. And I actually think this is going to sound really weird, but for, for writers, for African-American writers, for African-American women writers, stories like this in the perception of journalism are really important because I feel like a lot of times African-American writers are marginalized and people will say, oh, that she's great because she's going to get the interview with so-and-so and so-and-so. And Alex Smith is one of the whitest humans on the planet. He's just this kid who played quarterback at Utah. He's not cool at all. You know, like he actually seems kind of dorky. Matthews. Yeah. (laughs) But do you know what I mean? Like, I actually think stories like that are really kind of because I hate the cliches of it all. I I hate when people say, oh, that's great because I'm sure it gives him an advantage in the locker room. I hate Mm -hmm. that when people say that shit. I just thought this was a. This is a great story. Your, your lead is Alex Smith is exhausted, but he refused to show it. The moment is for them. The select few who have been chosen to witness the welcome to his new home. The line of selfie uh, seekers snakes around the perimeter of the Washington Redskins locker room at FedEx Field, funneling toward the large backdrop adorned with the team's name and small lettering. One by one, 200 fans draped in burgundy and gold step forward, offering a handshake and even an occasional hug. They've come to lay eyes on the new face of the franchise, the new quarterback in Jay Gruden's offense. To them, he is the future and potentially Washington's football savior. It's a really good story. And it's kind of funny because unlike, unlike Darius Geis, Alex Smith's story is, is rather unexceptional in many ways. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm glad you said that because, because that was the challenge in writing Alex's story. Because it was like, Alex is so, no, trust me, the guy has gone through a lot in his NFL career. Right. But, I mean, like, talk about family, like, you know, has a bunch of sisters and brothers. Parents were always there every game kind of thing. Um, Good good looking guy, like, went, you know, could have gone Ivy League, but wanted to play Division One. So it was just, he wanted to play big time football. So I literally struggled a lot with that story as far as what should the lead be. And I think because everything under the sun from San Francisco to Kansas City and now in D.C. had been written about Alex Smith. So it was like, how do you write a profile on a guy 
who's been who's had such a long career and everybody knows his story. Um, so that one was a lot tougher. Um, but I I loved it. The approach was the same. It's sort of like, okay, I'm fanning out. I'm trying to get as many people as possible that I can reach to talk about Alex. Like I even had Jim Tomsula, the defensive coordinator for the Redskins, give me 10 minutes on the phone and literally say, the only reason I'm talking, you sound nice, but the only reason I'm talking to you is because you only want to talk about Alex. Other than that, I don't care about your job. And I was like, cool, I can rock with that. Because right. I only I only need you to talk about Alex in this moment. Um, so so yeah, I I enjoyed that story, but it was difficult to write. It's, it's so funny. I, this is going to sound weird, but when you were talking about him, there's a uh, <laughs> the final rap scene in Eight Mile is Eminem taking apart Papa Doc, and he goes, "Clarence lives at home with both parents, and Clarence's parents have a real good marriage." <laughs> and I was just thinking yeah. of Alex Smith. It's like there's nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's. <laughs> But, but, you know, I went into this like, okay, everybody thinking, everybody's got some sort of obstacle or turmoil or some, something, something that they're trying to uh, overcome. And sometimes they don't, you know, I think for Alex, it was, you know, I literally only got seven, I think I got seven minutes and 40 seconds with him. Um, really? After that fan event. Mm-hmm. How does that, that happen? Fan event. Um, it was a lot of back and forth. Um, as far as like, hey, can I grab him? And then it's like, well, how long do you need? I'm like, ten minutes. And it's like, uh, how about like we do like eight? And then it was cut short. Um, which is, I mean, it is what it is. Like, I I didn't push it. It's sort of like this is the time the guy's gonna give me. This is what I have to work with. Fine. Um. And I hadn't built up at that point. He was still new. So it was the first time he met me and I hadn't built up any equity with him. So I was like, okay, he wants to only give me his marketing guy or PR wants to only give me eight minutes. Fine. Um, But in that time that we were sitting, what I found so fascinating with him is he was sort of like talking about San Francisco and talking about, you know, you dig yourself in a hole. And when I would press him, he'd be like, but I'm over that. And it's like, I get it, but talk a little bit more about what that felt like. And mm-hmm. for him, I think that that bugged him for a long time. Like, and I think he literally finally is over trying to prove himself to other people. I I think it took a long time. You know, I think that getting over that hump came in Kansas City. You know what I mean? Like, and and he doesn't have the same sort of conflict that a Darius Geis has. But I think we've all sort of been there when people don't believe in you. We've all sort of been there when people say you can't or are you sure you want to do this? Um, so especially me right now, you know, like I like that to me, those that kind of story resonates with me. Um, and that's why I love getting Alex's mom for the story, because she talked about what a tyrant he was when he was like two and three. And then he just like developed into this like angel. Um, you know, because it's just something, something different. For a but would you have, um, would you have, I mean, I don't know, like, you're Kimberly Martin. You've been in this business for a long time now. You're a really good writer. You have a great resume. Thank you. Um, isn't it, I mean, I had this talk with Gary Myers a couple of weeks ago. Like, they're like, we can give you seven minutes with Alex Smith. 
Is there not a little part of your mind that is thinking, go fuck yourself. I don't need seven minutes with Alex Smith. I'll just write about someone else. I don't need this. Like, or no. Um, in that moment, I was definitely in that. Oh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Um, but I knew that my assignment was for like, I had to get an Alex. I had to write an Alex Smith profile. So, but going into that, I had known from talking to people in Kansas city that Alex doesn't really like talking about himself. So I had prepared myself that this story, Alex's story will, will probably be told by other people's voices. That's how I kind of thought about it going into it. But I thought that the seven minutes, it may not have been a long time on the clock, but you know, it, it led to the lead of my story. You know what I mean? So it, it yeah. was worth it. I think every, every interview you can do is great. Um, I have not at all reached that point where I can be like, I don't need this shit. Like I'm out of here. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, I get it. Like I'm, you know, whatever time people want to give me that it is what it is. Sometimes I'll fight back, but that wasn't a battle. That particular day was not a battle. I thought was worth fighting. Um, right. Because I felt, felt like other people could probably tell me go more in depth about Alex than he was probably going to be willing to. What's the uh, what's the worst you've ever had an athlete treat you, and how did you deal with it? Hmm. I, I mean, worst is early in my career, kind of navigating the guys that hit on you thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's not that's not unique at all. But for me, because I. Sp- I was so determined to be seen as one of the guys. Like I just wanted to the other reporters. Like I just wanted to blend in with the other reporters. Like don't treat me any better. Don't treat me any different. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So having to navigate that was really tough in the beginning. And I wasn't even a beat writer. Like I was just a backup at that point. So. Um, this was where was looking- this was in in Newsday or Newsday, when I was at Newsday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was at Newsday. Um, and just sort of. Not not knowing who to really talk to as far as, well, how do I deal with this on a daily basis? Like I had the, you know, the player that was consistently like bugging me and, and hitting on me and stuff like, you know, it it got to the point where he he like had cursed me out and like had refused to it, not directly to my face, but it was told to me later, like when PR tried to step in, he was like, well, fuck her, da-da-da, like, I'm not speaking to her, da-da-da. And he didn't talk to me, which, looking back, it's comical because he was at the tail end of his career and he sucked. So so I didn't need his quotes in the locker room as much, but I think it's that initial, like, as a woman in this business, like, I think we all sort of, everybody's got their own thing that they have to overcome. And I think getting to a point of, of feeling comfortable and, and confident. Um, I would love for that situation to happen now, but I don't think it would. What would you do? I was going to ask you that. What would you do if that happens now? I probably would have barked back at the player. Like I would have, um, because at this point in my career, it's sort of, I think there's a, a level of respect you have to show the athletes just as people, but also understand you're in their locker room. Okay, fine. But, um, now it like I probably I wouldn't have I was so worried about the consequences back then I was like oh no now this player he like 
I, I turned him down. So now he's going to talk to all his like teammates. And what if they don't talk to me? And what if like I walk in the locker room and, you know, they're like snickering at me or whatever. And now it's like, I don't really give a shit, you know, because I think I've put in enough time in the business where um, I know myself and and that won't shake my confidence as much. Um, do you do you find um, do you find entering a locker room like I hate entering a locker room? I've always hated entering a locker room. I hate what? it's. Oh, I hate it so much. I've I always hated it. the locker room. I love it. Why? All right. Explain. I love it. Um, Here's the thing. Every locker room is different, though. Like going into, like, let's say the Mets clubhouse, way different than going into the Yankees clubhouse when I cover baseball. Um, going into the Jets locker room is different than the Redskins, different than the Bills, different than the Ravens, whatever. But I like the locker room because I loved it when I was on the Jets beat because I spent the most time there on that beat. And after a while, like, that's, that's, I think I'm best interacting with people. And so to me, it's like, I love, like, I will go on Fridays um, just to kind of have conversations with guys. Like, sometimes it's not even about, hey, I need a quote for something. Um, but it's just trying to get to know them. Like, talk, I find that the locker room, and I really love the Bills locker room, too. Like, I felt like the worst thing we can do as reporters is just stand in a massive group and interview yes. one guy so when everybody does that it's like then i like beeline and i go elsewhere um and i don't know i think that's the time where you can develop you know professional relationships you can get a feel for a guy you can ask him about like hey i saw on instagram you know your son's recital like that was cool like or hey you know like anything like i feel like and and the thing is though for me it's it's not fake. Like I don't talk to guys just to say I talk to them. Like if I if I develop a relationship with them it's because I genuinely feel like okay, there's something about this player, his personality, the way he works. There's something I really like about this guy or like, you know, I'm cool with his wife or something like that. You never know. Um but so to me the locker room is like I don't like phone interviews because I feel yeah, I like agree. looking at people and I like when people right. can look at me and and so when people are able to see my face and see my expressions I think that helps them understand like I am really just here trying to tell a story why do you hate right, I just want to say I just want to say all right what? I will tell you but I just want to say I entered journalism in 1994 so it's 24 years of journalism I've done this podcast. This is like 70 something episode of this podcast. You are the first person I've ever met who has stated a lot. I hate everything about the locker room. And this probably dates back to when in 1999, when I wrote the John Rocker story for SI and the following year, I'm walking through clubhouses and getting either ripped by players, attacked by players, ignored by players. And then also just like, it's 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 a whole range of things. I don't want to see you freaking walk around in a towel or half naked, and I don't oh, want to one hundred, yeah, like, yeah, mm-hmm. and I don't want to have to like. I know you're hiding from me, and I don't want to have to stand by your locker. I don't have to wait for you to finish your field and stream so I can ask you my two questions and leave. Like I just, I find it awkward and uncomfortable and weird and off putting. I hate the locker room. Hate as much as you seem to like it. I hate the locker room and always have. Damn it. <laughs> 
How is that? I get it. Trust me. Tr- no, trust me. The the guys, the big offensive linemen walking around with two tiny towels like that. I get it. Right. No fun um, for me. If there was a different setup, I would like locker room time more. Um, but I told myself very early, like, hey, like, if this is what it has to be, this is what it has to be. And I'm going to, um, if this is where all the guys are, um, yeah. the other male supporters, I have to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I, um, I appreciate you doing this. I'm a, uh, I mean, you admire of your work and, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Seriously. I, I, I really appreciate this one. No, I appreciate you even considering me for your podcast. I want to thank today's guest, Kimberly A. Martin, for appearing on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Kimberly on Twitter at by Kimberly, and that's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y-A. So at by Kimberly A. And read her work at Yahoo Sports. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newish book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to True Rider Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.